Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxe. It's summer, so for many Mainers, that means going up to camp to spend time in the great outdoors. For plenty of out-of-state tourists, Maine has become synonymous with summer vacations. Today's show will explore the origins of Maine's rise as vacation land in the 19th century and the surprising role of Civil War veterans in making tourism a pillar of the economy for many coastal Maine communities. Like a Maine summer, this intro is short and glorious. So let's do this. My guest today is Ian Stevenson. He has a PhD in American and New England Studies from Boston University. His work has appeared in Civil War history. A Peaks Island resident, prominently involved in all the local history there of consequence, involved in the New England chapter of the Society of Architectural Historians, a member of the board of the Vernacular Architecture Forum, as well as the Fifth Maine Museum on Peaks Island. Ian, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Ian, you're a historian of leisure. I would like to ask, do you ever have people asking you things like, well, you know, I thought real history uh, was about wars and constitutional amendments and the Great Depression economics and religion and politics. What could we possibly hope to learn by looking at the history of how people spent their leisure time? Well, Ian, that's a fantastic question. And uh, the humorous side of me would say that being a historian of leisure means that I get to do research by sitting on the beach. But uh, the true answer to the question is that Leisure tells us a lot about people's culture and about how their sense of self is formed. And the, the best way to explain this is where the concept of leisure and vacationing even comes from. So it's a, in the United States, it's a product of the 19th century. And it wasn't really until after the revolution and the sort of flourishing of the romantic movement that people of the upper class start to find value, almost moralistic value in going to places that are associated with the concept of the sublime. And so these are places that are awe-inspiring. And the idea is that it lends itself to thinking and creativity and ideas. And so people start to flock that have money, start to flock to places like Niagara Falls or the White Mountains of New Hampshire, or these sort of natural or naturalistic landscapes where there's some sort of wellness that can come out of being in these awe-inspiring places. But the thing is, the only people that can afford to do this are people who both have lots of disposable income and whose income allows them to not work. So it's both money to get you to the place and the ability to take time off from work. And so this is a roundabout way of 
of answering your question about leisure because the development of leisure is really part and parcel of the development of the American dream. Can um, I ask just yeah. to circle back to kind of look at the change over time element. So are mm-hmm. you saying, so in the 18th century then before this move to spend time at Niagara Falls and in nature, another kind of construction we can get back to people with disposable income would have been doing what, like gambling, playing cards, doing more, like certainly they had, you know, recreational activities, but they they weren't, you're saying they weren't sort of traveling to go be in nature. That's right. So traveling was really more of a kind of uh, purpose-driven enterprise for uh, business or forms of consumption that weren't related to just being outside for its own sake. So you do, around the time of the revolution, start to have people that have money spending money on purchasing items. So there's this idea of gentility that emerges as part of the larger British world. And people start to spend that have money, spend disposal income on fancy China that's coming from abroad or manufactured goods coming out of England or other places. But it's not until after the revolution that people start to think about using their time as an expendable thing. And in fact, if you think about it, we talk about spending time, right? We almost think of it as as a form of money. So you have to have money in order to spend time. Mm, This is a good point. And we we should argue you have to be more conscious of the time itself, where, as I'm sure we'll get into the idea of, you know, with the, the rise of industrialization and office work, and the increased regimentation of time in the 19th century in a way that wouldn't have made as much sense to early modern folks or or medieval folks. This is exactly right. So the sort of codification of time and the industrial revolution plays a huge part in leisure because leisure becomes a way of separating your time from work. And the industrial revolution allows more and more people to participate in a consumer culture. And so time is part of that consumer culture. It's not just objects that factories allow. And so as there becomes this concept of surplus in manufactured goods, there's also a sense that labor can produce surplus time which people in turn can spend just as they could spend money. Just as people are purchasing objects that start to help identify them as part of a social class, how they spend their time helps identify them within a social class as well. And and the Industrial Revolution not only produces more goods, it allows the ability to travel to accelerate. So the development of railroads and steamships and other things that allow people to go places more quickly versus horse or on foot allows people to reach destinations that they wouldn't have a few decades earlier. Let's talk about these destinations, the Mm -hmm. novelty of them. Uh, Your work in particular focuses on, uh, in part, the rise of vacationing, summer vacationing in Maine and the role of veterans organizations in Mm -hmm. that. When does this concept of a, a summer vacation, like to a camp or something like that, when does that phenomenon become common? So it starts just before the Civil War. And what happens is places 
that are were once seen as dangerous. So, so the woods or the seaside or places where this concept of nature that you talked about or wilderness maybe was threatening start to become associated with healthfulness. So this is before germ theory. So people don't really understand where disease comes from. And a lot of people believed in what are called miasmas. So the idea there is that there's this uh, dirty air that makes people sick. And conversely, clean air makes people well. Now, of course, there's some truth to this if you think about pollution and exposure to, to toxins. But right. people, people did not understand that you know, uh, bacteria in water uh, or insects that are carrying viruses or other things could make you sick. So people start to associate healthfulness with these types of destinations, you know, waterfront uh, properties or in the woods. And at the same time, religion is encouraging more and more people to take time for spiritual healing. So you have the development before the Civil War of the concept of camp meetings. So thing, uh, religious groups like the Methodists on Martha's Vineyard, for example, purchase land and they have gatherings every summer for people that are ostensibly about spiritual engagement. And they start out that way. But the people that are coming to these places say, well, I'm coming for a week-long spiritual experience, and I have to travel all this way, so I'm going to tack a few days on at the end and a few days on at the beginning, which are more for relaxation than spiritualization, but they feel justified in going to those places because they're going there for a specific purpose. So they add on, oh, we're going to stroll along the shore, and we're going to be in the woods and do these other things. And so this kind of middle-class idea of a vacation starts to emerge just before the Civil War. And then I'm assuming we should add that it's the railroads and sometimes steamships that allow people to get to these places in a reasonable amount of time. Whereas before the advent of steam powered travel, this just wasn't really possible. That's exactly right. And in fact, people could even go to places for just a day and make day trips and not necessarily have to spend the night with the advent of railroads and steamships. That's, that's exactly right. Okay. Where do the rusticators fit in? Some of us in Maine have heard of rusticators, especially on, on Mount Desert Island. Do they fit into this picture you're describing? They do fit into this picture, except the rusticators are people that are wealthier. So these are the people who, in the beginning of the 19th century, would have been taking these journeys to Niagara Falls or the White Mountains on their own dime in stagecoaches. And these are wealthier families from major cities on the East Coast, New York, Boston, etc., who are taking advantage of an economic situation in Maine where agriculture is starting to decline as farming shifts to the Midwest. And there are families in Maine on the coast who have a surplus of land and realize they can cash out by selling this property to people who want to spend their summers along the coast of Maine. So there's sort of a land grab that happens by these notable families who, again, have the ability to spend a whole summer away from the city in these other places. And so the other part of all this, we mentioned the Industrial Revolution, but urbanization is really important to the story of vacationing because 
there's an impetus to get out of the city to these places that are seen as more natural, but you need to have the city as a place to escape from in order to want to go to a place that's more natural. So the rusticators in Maine and places like Bar Harbor and other places are people who want to escape the ills of the city, which again, come back to the concept of miasma and dirty air, but also wanting to escape other people in the city. So this would be, again, coming back to the concept of class, working class uh, people who are out and about in the city parks, or more and more immigrants who these families that are largely descended of Anglo-Americans are wanting to escape from seeing large groups of Irish Americans and German Americans and other people who they see as uh, their behavior is seen as kind of unbecoming. You know, there's Mm. more of a saloon culture and drinking and public activities that these other people of a sort of genteel class don't want to associate with. That's a good point that we should remember that the until the early 19th century, there were really no cities to speak of in the United States. I mean, you look at uh, New York City was the biggest city at the time of the American Revolution, and it had about 25,000, 30,000 people tops, not, you know, much of a city by certainly by modern day standards. And so it isn't until really after the War of 1812, that you start to get these large urban concentrations of people that are, you know, dirty and noisy enough and worth escaping in any numbers. That's exactly right. Now, the rusticators are one class of people that are escaping the city. However, people that are of the middle class or even the working class are also interested in this idea of escaping the city. Now, they may not be able to go spend a whole season in Bar Harbor, but they might be able to spend a weekend day at Old Orchard Beach. So mm-hmm. places develop along the coast that satisfy the needs of different classes of people, and they're appealing to the same idea of getting outside and having leisure. So even to this day, an experience at Old Orchard Beach is different than going to Bar Harbor, but the idea is the same, that you're getting to these places outside the city and and the lower classes are wanting to participate in that as well. That's a good point. Now, before we get to these summer camps proper, I I have to ask then, so talking about the sort of uh, greater democratization of leisure and Mm -hmm. in in the context of the rise of mass popular culture and entertainment for the non-wealthy. Speaking of Southern Maine, many of us have heard the the jingles on the radio for Funtown, Splashtown, USA, (laughs) and such, Saco. Thinking of Southern Maine and some of these kind of carnivalesque entertainment atmospheres, when does that become a feature of the vacationing and leisure landscape in the United States? That's a great question. So that happens in the later 19th century. So this is after the Civil War. And this is mostly in the 1880s, 1890s, and in the um, turn of the 20th century. This is, uh, again, has to do with disposable income and an infrastructure that is built that allows people to get to these places. And there are all of these types of uh, amusements. So carousel rides and Ferris wheels and these kinds of things, which are coming out of the World's Fair uh, circuit that's happening in the late 19th century and uh, drawing more and more people as these cities become more and more crowded into these places of amusement, as opposed to an engagement with nature that was happening 
on the coasts and in mountainous areas and that sort of thing. Is there like a prototype? Like, are there Mainers who go to Coney Island or something and say like, okay, we need to, we need to do this at Kenny Bunkport. We need to do this at Old Orchard (laughs) Beach that you're aware of or no? Well, here's the kicker. A lot of times those amusement parks are pioneered by railroad companies who are looking to increase fares on their lines that they've already built. So oftentimes at the end of the line, if it's a trolley company, so in Portland, there's something called the Riverton Trolley Park. um, And the idea was, well, if we can get more fares on these lines, let's uh, build something for people to go to a destination. So the idea is coming not necessarily necessarily out of Coney Island, but in the Boston area, there are places in Hull, for example, just uh, on the South Shore, not far from Boston. And these are often pioneered by railroad companies. Weir's Beach in New Hampshire, which is another veteran landscape, the Boston, Concord and Montreal Railroad basically gives land uh, at one of its stations for amusements to be built. So it's actually a profit-driven enterprise that's coming from these infrastructure enterprises. Interesting. All right. So we have mass amusement. We also have getting away from it all in nature, which in its own way, really nature gets commodified thanks to the industrial revolution. That is that it's a destination you still pay to go to be in. Right. So hooray for that. That's exactly, that's exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no, right. That's exactly right. And if you'd like to transition to veterans, I will show you exactly how they play a picture in a big way in this commodification and a specific form of leisure after the Civil War that does not happen before the Civil War. Leading into this question of the veterans organizations after the Civil War, I have to ask, clearly the Civil War was bigger by many orders of magnitude than say the Revolutionary War or the War of 1812. But besides size, were there different functions or qualitative differences between Civil War veterans organizations and maybe any kind of earlier veterans organizations from like the War of 1812 or the U.S.-Mexican War? One of the biggest differences, as you alluded to, is numbers of veterans. But there's a there's a more important difference. The veterans of the Civil War in large numbers were civilians who became soldiers for a few years and went back to civilian life, as opposed to the Mexican War being primarily career soldiers. So these are people who military experience is a defining moment of their lives, but it was not how they defined themselves, if that makes sense. So they weren't soldiers who wore uniforms their whole lives just for a handful of years, maybe even one year. Yet it was something that was so life-changing to them that they could not escape it. And there were just people from that group everywhere in the United States. Oh, so there just weren't enough of these sort of short-term civilian volunteers in these other wars to make much of a population difference, you're saying? That's exactly right. Even the Revolutionary War, I guess that surprises me because like you read in the early 19th century, various memoirs and complaints by veterans that they're not respected and such, but maybe that's because they're not organized. I think that's right. And they they don't really have organizations afterwards. There are some after the Mexican War, too. You know, there are small groups and gatherings, but people are scattered around the country. And so, Mm. you know, the idea of of, uh, reunions doesn't really exist until after the Civil War. And my work, uh, part of what I did was I 
examined this concept of reunions. And I found that Civil War veterans actually had to sort of invent a reunion and discover what types of things they should do with these reunions, who should be involved, where they should happen, and those types of questions. And they negotiate this for a a solid decade until they really kind of solidify what they think a reunion should encapsulate. Did they borrow it all from, I know there was like a fraternal organization of officers from the Continental Mm -hmm. Army Mm -hmm. uh, after the Revolutionary War. George Washington was famously uh, a member and they were occasionally thought of as too elitist or secretive or something. But did this influence how Civil War veterans thought about themselves at all? It did. And so there were different layers here. So Immediately after Lincoln's assassination, a group of union officers, I believe in North Carolina, forms a group whose acronym is MOLIS, which stands for Military Order of the Loyal Legion of the United States. And the idea was they were going to form a group that would be ready for action should the South try again to secede right after the Civil War in the wake of Lincoln's assassination. And this group ends up becoming a veterans organization just for officers. And then they eventually change their rules and they allow the descendants of those officers, but they never allow the rank and file to join Mollus. And so this was sort of a high tier that was more in, in line with those Revolutionary War or the Order of the Cincinnati, I believe. That's the called. one it was called. Sorry, yeah. I couldn't remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And these sort of elite organizations. And immediately after the war, other groups of officers start gathering. And here's where here's the thing about figuring out what these reunions are going to be like. So one of the earliest ones, which was the Army of the Tennessee, the officers of the Army of the Tennessee, gathers at Saratoga Springs Hotel in upstate New York. They are choosing a place that has some affiliation with a previous war, right? Revolutionary War. But it's also a place associated with health and wellness. And so they are realizing that their gatherings, there's no reason why they can't be pleasant as well as reflective of their war experience. So they want to get together, but they also are happy to do things like go fishing or consume water that's associated with healthfulness at one of these spring hotels, which were common in the Northeast. So Maine has these at Poland Spring. And there's one outside of Augusta, which is now the veterans home at Togus was a mineral springs hotel founded in the 1850s that went under as a result of the Civil War, actually. And the federal government ends up buying and turns into a veterans facility, again, because it's associated with this kind of healthful landscape. And there's also infrastructure there. So these veterans organizations, they meet, they just, so at what point then they decide what they're going to do? After the Civil War, what are the major functions of these veterans organizations? And then of course, we'll get to them vacationing. Yeah. Well, it the vacationing starts right away. So after the Civil War, in addition to Mollus, which is a very kind of specialized veterans group, there are two other types of veterans groups that are most common. The first is what's called the Grand Army of the Republic, or GAR for short. This is a generic Union veterans organization. And eventually the Confederates will have a counterpart called the United Confederate Veterans or UCV. And the Grand Army of the Republic is open to any honorably discharged Union veteran. And they set up what they call posts, which is individual locations in 
they end up becoming in nearly every town and city within the United States. Hmm. And there's another type of union veteran organization, which I think was more important, which was called a regimental association. Now, a regimental association is the surviving members of a specific regiment that fought in the Civil War. And allow me to take a second to explain how the army in the Civil War was constructed. So the federal government would call upon a state and say, we need two regiments of men for this enlistment that we're doing right now because our numbers are dwindling to fight the Confederates. And so they would go to a state and say, we need two regiments. A regiment is composed of a thousand men. That state government would in turn go to towns or cities or counties and say, we need a company from Lewiston for the 5th Maine. And so a company is composed of 100 men. So now Lewiston has a quota for 100 men that it has to give to the state. So Lewiston gives 100 men, Gorham gives 100 men, etc. And once they get 1,000 put together, this is a regiment. So this regiment fights in all the same battles. It marches together through the whole war, and then it's discharged at the same time. There are exceptions for different soldiers, and I won't get into those details. But after the war, those people have a sort of camaraderie and coherence from having fought in all the same battles. So a lot of these regiments after the war form regimental associations where the members of that specific unit, which is tied to a state and localities, will start to have gatherings These gatherings are often within the home state because of proximity of former soldiers and a pride of place because they they represented their specific state. And as I mentioned, they were interested in gathering almost right away in the 1860s, just after the war. But they need to decide what these gatherings are going to be like. And what do they turn to? Well, they turn to camping as their primary way of gathering early on. Now, you might wonder why camping? What's what's the deal with that? Well, you would think it reminds them too much of the war and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do that if I was them, but I guess Here's the made. thing. Here's the thing. It reminds them of the war and it reminds them of the best part of the war for them. Because camping at the end of the day or in winter quarters was the time when you were least likely to be shot at when you were eating food, when you had a warm fire, when you could play cards and sing songs and dance and play football and all these other fun things with your comrades. This was the restorative part of the campaign at the end of the day. So this was the time of the war that brought them the most joy in contrast to the marching and the fighting and the hot weather you know, or exposure that they would feel Uh, out in a field. So they are reenacting the war, but the part of the war that they enjoyed the most. Okay. And at the same time, camping is becoming popular across the whole country after the Civil War as part of this idea of leisure and vacation. Now, these two things are connected because before the Civil War, Almost no Americans camped. They had no idea how to do it. There were some of the sort of philosopher, transcendentalist movement like Emerson and people who would do these kind of camping excursions or maybe fur trappers further out in the West and this sort of thing. But in general, Americans did not camp before the Civil War. It also makes sense. You got to figure like before the Civil War, most people still don't live in cities. And Mm -hmm. so the idea of camping is basically just like, a way less comfortable version of your house. Like most people still live 
near not very built up areas. It's not like they don't experience bugs and animals and all kinds of other, <laughs> and the right. elements and all these other unpleasant things. And so it's, oh, great. We'll just leave our house and be less comfortable. So that's that right. Totally makes sense. It makes sense. And on top of that, they don't have the know-how to do it and they don't have the equipment. So who's going to go do this? Well, after the Civil War, you have a huge number of men who suddenly have tents. They know how to pitch them and they realize that there is a reason to go outside. And on top of that, it's a lot cheaper than staying at one of the new fashionable hotels that's coming up or these other things. Hmm. So in 1877, a Portland banker named John Mead Gould, who's a veteran of the 1st, 10th, and 29th Maine regiments, writes a book called How to Camp Out. This is the first camping guide published in the United States explaining how to camp. And he specifically says that he's drawing on his army experience. And he has his friend, Ed Morse, produce drawings of pitching tents, how to carry a bedroll, what types of things to bring with you when you go, how much food you should bring. And it's layered with these different gender ideals about women need more rest than men and things you could, you know, tropes that you could expect. But it still is encouraging family camping excursions based on wartime experience. And so this is just evidence of the way that Civil War veterans promote this idea of camping intense and getting outdoors, which comes from their war experience. And this is what they're choosing to do for their early reunions. And it's part of this larger camping culture. So there's kind of a pull and a push of camping and veterans and veterans and camping. I'm guessing that pretty soon they go to like the same place every year and this becomes organized where it's not sort of, oh, go wander off into the woods on the foot of Mount Katahdin where nobody else is, right? Like this is- That's, ex that's exactly right. Yeah, they start to have patterns and go to the same places. And we have the veterans themselves camping out. And what happens is they start to invite other people to these so-called reunions. Sometimes it's orphans and widows of men who died in the war as sort of surrogate members. And what happens is other veterans say, well, if we have women and children here that are widows and orphans, why can't my wife and my child come? So you start oh, so to have- initially the vets don't bring their families. No, they don't. And there's even tension between vets who don't want civilians there and those who do. And there's lots of great sort of writings in people's journals and other uh, regimental association newsletters saying by special vote. We are bringing women and children again this year and this sort of thing. So they would, there was a little bit of contestation about that, actually. And what ends up happening is once you introduce the civilian element, then the idea of consumption of food starts to change. So early on, these gatherings, they're eating things like hardtack and reenacting war. But, you know, the family members are not so interested in doing that. And actually, neither are the veterans. And they can use these other people as a convenient excuse to say, well... Why don't we have a clam bake as well? If we're going to the Casco Bay Islands, for example, you know, we'll still have the hard tack, but let's have some chowder while we're there too. And maybe we'll have some ice cream for the kids and this kind of thing. So they start to merge leisure culture and memory of the war by uh, the types of places they're choosing to gather, who's invited, what they're consuming, and what activities they're doing. So they'll, you know, sometimes have reenactments or, you know, they'll march 
in formation like they did in the war, but they'll also have things like potato sack races and, you know, games of baseball and things like this, sort of blending these two forms of memory uh, and leisure together. At what point does this start to have an impact on the culture and economy of the places in Maine that these vets are going? At what point do locals say like, aha, I'm going to rent out my property to these people to camp, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to sell them ice cream and clams and all the rest. So that starts to happen in the 1870s and 1880s. And remember that I said that uh, a lot of the railroad companies are promoting ticket sales, essentially, by building infrastructure of amusement. Well, they are also encouraging veteran organizations to use pleasure groves and other places. And sometimes they'll offer discounted tickets, but they know they're going to get a big block of sales for this weekend if all these veterans and their families are coming out. So veterans are choosing landscapes that are associated with leisure because of the underlying activity that can happen there, but also because they're easy to get to, right? So you have people from across the state, they're all coming on railroads. And if we can go to a hub that's easy to get to, that's the location we're choosing to go to in the 1870s and 1880s. Now, what happens is some veterans who are going to these same places over and over again realize they're paying money to somebody else, right? And so they say, well, why don't we buy some land for ourselves and just go to the same place over and over again? So they do fundraisers among the regimental association, and they essentially will sell shares of a sort of stock company of the idea being to purchase land and erect a building that can be a permanent gathering place. And in Maine, the first regiment to do this, and this is not a coincidence, is the 1st, 10th, and 29th Maine. Who did I tell you was a veteran of the 1st, 10th, and 29th Maine? Oh, right. The first author of a camping book nationally teaching people how to camp, John Mead Gould. So this group buys a piece of land on Long Island, Maine in Casco Bay in 1883 and in 1884 builds a cottage, uh, so-called, for their reunion gatherings. Now, they uh, have their first reunion there in 1884 and it's a rousing success and it includes family members And the following summer in 1885, that other veteran organization I mentioned, the Grand Army of the Republic, holds its national convention in Portland on the Eastern Promenade. They name it Camp U.S. Grant after Ulysses S. Grant, who had just died a few months earlier. And word spreads among Maine veterans in particular about this idea that, oh, one regimental association bought land and built a cottage on one of the Harbor Islands. The next year... The 7th Maine Regiment does the same thing on the same island and builds a shared cottage. Two years later, on neighboring Peaks Island, the 5th Maine does the same thing. Three years later, the 8th Maine on Peaks Island does the same thing. Two years after that, the 14th Maine buys land on Long Island and does the same thing. So there's this pattern of veterans following one precocious group of buying land and building these permanent buildings where they can have these gatherings year after year. The thing is, they don't only use these buildings for that short reunion every year, which might've been two or three days every August, for example, because they have this infrastructure. So they rent these buildings out sometimes to other regimental associations or to individual members of the regiment who start to have 
these kind of family vacations, but shared group family vacations where let's say 10 veterans and their families will come together for four or five days together. And then they leave and then the next group of veterans comes in and then the next group of veterans comes in. So you have this kind of constant utilization oh, like of, of these spaces. Almost like a timeshare. You have to pay, you know, for a certain number, you know, per night to stay there. And there are restrictions about how many nights. So you can't have a family just take over the building for the whole whole season. But you have this kind of fellowship that's happening, which are ostensibly reunions, but really they're vacations that are centered on civil war camaraderie and comradeship, but are still vacations at the same time. Hmm. So so they're something a little different than a reunion. Now, are there parallel organizations at the same time setting up summer camps like labor unions and churches or immigrant uh, immigrant societies, uh, things of that nature? Yes. So religious groups in particular are doing this. So you might remember I mentioned that before the Civil War, the Methodists um, in some locations are getting in on this game of buying land and they initially pitch tents, but eventually the members of those fellowships after the Civil War and some before, mostly after, start building family cottages on this land. And so the same thing is happening in Maine, um, and it's not just Methodists. In the late 19th century, you have the rise of spiritualism, which is a religion based on communicating with the dead. Spiritualist camps at places like Mount Etna, Maine, which is in the center of the state, build places like this, which are around a fellowship of spiritualism. But yes, this kind of concept of gatherings of like-minded people purchasing land and building infrastructure for shared vacations becomes a prevalent thing. And other veterans organizations in Maine start to do this. So the Grand Army of the Republic that I mentioned to you, several posts in central Maine on Lake Sebastocook by a piece of land called Camp Benson and dole it out into plots, which can be purchased by only members of the GAR. And in fact, the deed uh, restrictions uh, prevent sale of those plots to anybody that is neither a member of the GAR or eventually they have to change it to be descendants of members of the GAR. So it's the same concept. And they build these kinds of amusements. They have something called a shoot the shoot ride. They have uh, Ferris wheels, baseball games, uh, you know, baseball field and other things. So this concept of these kinds of vacations that are based around some sort of fellowship flourish in the late 19th and at the turn of the 20th century. So at what point does all this vacationing begin to have a sort of scale impact on Maine's culture and economy? When does Maine become vacation land as now it's (laughs) kind of naming itself? Yeah, so Maine officially names itself Vacation Land in 1916 because the state realizes that there's a real economic boon. And this is at a time when other industries are starting to wane. I mean, you still have fishing and lumbering and granite quarrying and other industries, but agriculture, as I mentioned, is in significant decline. And there's this idea of Maine being a restorative place and wealthy people are interested in traveling by expanding railroads up into the mountains and the North Woods. And you have more fishing and cabins and camping and other activities. And Maine actively promotes this starting really in the 1880s, but up until the 20th century and now obviously into the 21st century of itself as being part of this world. I mean, that's that's why you go to Maine. 
L.L. Bean becomes part of this whole story with his famous boots in the, I think, 1911 is when he uh, establishes his store selling these boots. So by the turn of the 20th century, Maine is known as a destination place for leisure, but also for health uh, at the same time. Thinking of the impact of these veterans, these summer camps, is there a long-term impact of the demographics on these places where this economy springs up and this this network of, of veterans summer camps? Like, are there more permanent residents staying? Are there people moving there to be able to take advantage of these customers for various you know industries? So this is a very good question. What I have found is that most of the veteran-centric leisure industry is catering to in-state residents. And I would extend that to people who become transplants. So that site that I mentioned in central Maine and Newport, Camp Benson, is a GAR location. And the, re- the distinction between the GAR and the regimental associations is that you can belong to the GAR regardless of what unit you fought in. So people who moved to Maine who couldn't belong to a regimental association because, let's say, they fought in a California regiment can join the GAR. So those people are gravitating towards places like Camp Benson, and they can never really participate in the activities in the Casco Bay Islands that the regimental associations are doing. So it's shuffling people within the state, or in the case of the GAR, appealing to people who have become new Maine residents, as opposed to a transient population, unlike the sort of rusticator concept that you asked about earlier, where you have people that are from New York or Boston who are coming for several months a year and then going back. The veteran landscape is part of the general tourism industry, but not part of this idea of bringing dollars into Maine that might otherwise have gone elsewhere. Okay. And did any of these sites actively recruit other regimental organizations from out of state? I have found no evidence of that because in other states, they are doing the same game where they are trying to keep their veterans sort of catered to within the home state. So I mentioned okay. Weir's Beach in New Hampshire on the shore of Lake Winnipesaukee. So there's a, an umbrella organization called the New Hampshire Veterans Association, which is encouraging all New Hampshire veterans to gather at the same site every year and even helping to subvent some of the costs of land for them to build similar uh, cottages for New Hampshire residents. So you don't see a lot of New Hampshire people coming to Maine because they have their own site uh, to visit. Does this pattern established by the Civil War veterans organizations, does it start a trend where later sort of veterans of foreign wars posts, do they set up their own camps after the Spanish-American War, World War I, and so forth? This is a very, very good question. And one that I was very curious about as I did my research. So what ends up happening is these Civil War veterans in their later years, the surviving people actually take votes about what to do with their buildings as it becomes quite clear that, you know, they're going to, the buildings are going to outlive them. And in every instance, they vote down the idea of giving them to veterans of subsequent wars because they have determined that these buildings and sites take on a secondary purpose, which was not why they were built, which is about preserving the legacy of these Civil War veterans among their family members. As the war's memory starts to become co-opted by the lost cause and ideas of reconciliation, 
Union veterans want to preserve their own story, at least among their descendants. And so the buildings often become, if uh, in some cases they become bought out, those shares that I talked about become bought out by one or more families and they become almost privatized or they continue to be used by the descendants of a particular regiment well into the 20th century, the ones that survive. So they don't transition into the kind of generic veteran experience. And at the same time, veterans of subsequent wars are not building these types of places. And I think there's two ways to explain that. The first is that after World War I, we start to have the rise of more kind of national veteran organizations. So while there was the GAR before that, the American Legion is a product of World War I. And one of the reasons why these national organizations have so much attraction and power is because after the Civil War, the way the army is constructed changes. You no longer have a state-based system like they had in the Civil War, and you have a sort of national army. So in a particular regiment, you'd have people from Maine serving with people from Minnesota, with people from Alabama, right? And after the war, they disperse and they go back to their home communities, and they don't have as much connection to their neighbors and their war experience the way Civil War veterans did. They're more connected to the national experience of the war through organizations like the American Legion. And so you don't have this uh, impetus to build shared summer cottages that you all sort of chip money into because you might not see those men ever again because they're off a thousand miles away. Oh, that makes sense. The other thing I'll add is these buildings and landscapes were constructed by veterans at a time when the amount of support by the government was low. The GAR ends up doing a lot of lobbying and they are successful in getting things like pensions for Civil War veterans. But a lot of these were developed as sort of mutual aid. It was filling a void that the government was not supporting for fellowship for veterans afterwards. And so you do get more services after these later wars for veterans. So they don't seem to have the same need to pony up the money to build their own types of buildings because there are other places to go. I see. You're on the board of the Fifth Maine Museum where where their site was. And so what happened to that site after the members themselves died? They hold annual reunions until 1938. That's the last one where a surviving Civil War veteran attends. The descendants hold reunions for two more years, with 1940 being the last, ostensibly the last reunion held at the site. The building falls into disrepair throughout the 40s and into the 50s. And a church choir from New York City offers to these descendants, who are the board members, to purchase it for their summer choir to come spend time on Peaks Island. One of the board members goes to the others and says, look, this building's falling apart. We should just take this money and run. Other board members have a vitriolic response to this and they take a vote. The decision made at this meeting is that not only will they not sell the building to this New York City church choir, but that we are going to change the articles of incorporation of this organization from a regimental memorial association into a community museum. 
And as a result of that, the building changes its purpose. And so while it does honor the fifth main veterans and the lower floor still largely reproduces what the building looked like when veterans were there, they have changed some of the upstairs uh, sleeping rooms into museum exhibits about the history of the island. So it becomes this kind of dual role. And on top of that, they put bylaws into effect that say that if the building is ever not going to honor the memory of the fifth main soldiers, the building needs to be raised. The land will be donated to the city of Portland as a public park and a marker must be put in the center saying here once stood the fifth main Memorial Hall. And so the building could never be used for a purpose other than uh, remembering the veterans, although this additional layer of island history, you know, is part of that re-envisioning of the building. So people who wish to come out to Peaks Island and see the Fifth Main Museum, uh, it's going to be open this summer as well? It will be open through the entire summer into September. And I encourage people to come out. It's a short 10 minute walk from the ferry and spectacular views, great museum exhibits. And it's a nice reason to come out and see Peaks Island and learn a little bit about Civil War veterans and their part in vacationing history in Maine. Great. What is something that you are working on that our audience should be aware of? Well, if people want to learn more about this, one thing they could do is come out in August for the annual meeting of the 5th Maine, where I will be giving a presentation, an illustrated presentation, so you can see some pictures of all of this activity. And I am working on turning my dissertation into a book manuscript, so uh, stay tuned. I hope in another year or two that there will be a book that talks about not only the veterans in Maine, but across the United States who were doing the same activity at the same time, including Confederate veterans. All right. Does the the Fifth Main have a, a website that people can see us find a schedule on? Yes, Ian. It is the fifthmainmuseum.org and fifth is spelled out F-I-F-T-H. All right. Excellent. Finally, what is something that somebody else has recently come out with that the audience should be aware of? For people who are interested in the history of camping beyond just the role of Civil War veterans should check out Terrence Young's Heading Out, A History of American Camping. It's a great book because it also talks about the legacy of veterans but in, and camping in the United States, including the formation of the Boy Scouts and later forms of camping that don't necessarily involve getting your using your feet to get to the campground. So the idea of campers and camper vans and tensions about whether or not you really are camping if you're in an air-conditioned vehicle uh, with a TV, a satellite TV. So recommend that book. Excellent. Sounds great. Ian Stevenson, thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully we will speak with you again soon. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Ian. That's our show. Our fandom is growing every day, and you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Mainly History. To keep up with future episodes, find links to books we mention in our discussions, and of course, make new friends. Original fans are welcome to take a skeptical attitude towards latecomers from away. Join us again as we speak with a scientist tracking the elusive right whale, a gentle creature that was hunted almost to extinction during the age of whaling. A handful of survivors still spend part of the year off the main coast living link to a maritime past where the oceans teemed with marine mammals. We'll learn about how they live, 
what they sound like, and what we can do to ensure that they survive and even thrive in the years to come. That's next time on Mainly History. Thank you.